Please could we pray together? Our God of mercy and truth, may our minds be clear, may our hearts be receptive as we pay attention to your holy word. Through Christ the living word we pray, amen. I have to begin with a bit of a confession this afternoon. A few sermons back, I said a few critical things about the lectionary and the validity of it. And one of the things I said that is good about the lectionary is it discourages preachers from cherry picking. Like, I'll pick my favorite verse and preach on that as often as I can. Well, my words come back to haunt me because, as you've noticed already, three of the four texts today are focused on the subject of death, which I would never, ever, ever have cherry-picked, but here we are. And I know that some of you have had losses and bereavements not so long ago. Uh, It is a strange thing how these things seem to happen in bunches. I've had three people on my staff of 12 or 14 people have had losses in their family just in the last month. But this is the focus of the lectionary texts, at least three of them today. A famous comic once said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, funny, but that's not the way it works. Three of our four readings today, one way or another, as I've said, treat these subjects of death and mortality. One of the topics which we try, I certainly try to avoid. It's often considered impolite to speak of death. At the same time, as we are reminded, we are in the season of Lent, where themes of death and mortality are never too far away from us. In case we've forgotten, and I needed to be reminded of this. The season of Lent begins with the imposition of ashes. And those words, remember, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And it's not surprising then that when we hear scriptures like Ezekiel 33 and Romans 6, John chapter 11, we're already kind of on that wavelength in Lent reflecting on our own frailty, reflecting on our own mortality. So let's think first about Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. I would venture to say that if we know nothing else about the prophecy of Ezekiel, we we do remember the Valley of Dry Bones. We remember because it's so vivid, it's unforgettable. And what could give a more powerful and chilling image of death and frailty and mortality than that, than that image from the Valley of Dry Bones? Death and bones and dust. As I hear this chapter read, I'm reminded of those poor laborers, probably slaves, whose job it was in the Civil War to revisit battlefields where people had not been buried properly or had not been buried at all. And they'd spend day after day, probably weeks, 
burying the dead. What could be worse than that? Only in Ezekiel's picture, it's not only the deaths of individuals, possibly on the battlefield, as tragic as that is, but the death of a culture, the death of a tradition, the death of a way of life. Because many of the people from the Holy Land had been deported to Babylon. And so they lost their homeland. They lost their sense of cohesion and community. They lost their place of worship. It all sounds like it could have happened in the 20th or 20th century, times of so much tragedy. All of that was gone. One writer compared the experience of God's people to PTSD on a national scale. Everyone was touched by shock and disillusionment and disenchantment and despair. And even the prophet and priest Ezekiel experienced loss at the most deeply personal level. Chapter 24 reads as follows. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take from you the delight of your eyes. Yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. Groan quietly, do not mourn for the dead. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your mustache and beard or eat the customary food of mourners. So I spoke to the people in the morning and in the evening my wife died. The next morning I did as I had been commanded. Surrounded by the death of an entire community and way of life and now experiencing personal loss, There's also the attraction of denial, that this can't really be happening, or perhaps even of nostalgia for former times, that if I just tough this out, somehow things will go back to normal times. But we see in the life of Ezekiel, in this heartbroken priest and prophet, he hears in 27, that was read for us a few minutes ago. He hears in chapter 20, chapter 37, rather, what amounts to just look. It's all over. It's all over. And yet right on the heels of that, there's this other word. Keep watching for what the Spirit of the Lord will do. Keep watching for what the Spirit of the Lord will do. Let's move on to the next passage about death, if you like, Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul, too, has a lot to say here about death, though of a different kind and in a different sphere. The interior death struggle. The interior death struggle that goes on continuously between our two selves, our two natures. A kind of cycle of futility and inner tension that seems to have no resolution. And that as Paul describes it, wears us down from inside. Here's something to think about. Everyone who has ever lived 
has known something of that inner conflict. Everyone who has ever lived has known something of that inner conflict, trying to be one kind of person and yet becoming something quite different. One writer put it this way, the season of Lent is not only a recollection of the life of, of the death of Jesus, not only a recollection of the death of Jesus, it is also a reminder that because we are his followers, we too are called, we too are called upon to die. Our death is not simply the physical death that we appropriately seek to postpone, it's also the death to the old life, the life of sin, the life that is lived in opposition to the will of God. That death, we are to seek to die daily. And he goes on, to, or she goes on to say, often we willingly remember the death of Christ, but only unwillingly do we remember our own dying that is called for. And Lent is the time in which that can be done, and done graciously. And so as with Ezekiel, in the writings of Paul in chapter 6, there's a way beyond. He says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. Ezekiel and Paul, and now the words of Jesus to his friends in John chapter 11. I have a question. How many of you are reading through the Gospel of John? There's no shame involved in not lifting your hand. I'm just curious. Have you noticed how different the Gospel of John is from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? You may notice how John is Way less, interest, way less interested in simply getting the facts in chronological order, and he's much more focused on what the life of Jesus means. For example, the way the meaning of the life of Jesus comes to light through those encounters, one after another, the guests at the wedding in chapter 2, the visit with Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well in chapter 4, and so on. It's a way of shedding light on what the life of Jesus means, not just how it happened. And how each encounter is so unique and builds, as Deacon Liz said, builds towards people deciding to believe. Another thing that stands out for me, reading through John, is how early, and I think Deacon Liz mentioned this as well, how early John's account gets Jesus to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. So what we now refer to as Holy Week. And pretty well the last episode before the triumphal entry in Holy Week is what we just heard read from John chapter 11. Now I want to say that other than the account of the crucifixion in chapters 19 and following, other than those chapters, no part of John's gospel is so centered on death as chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. The other thing is that almost no part of John's gospel demonstrates so fully, demonstrates so fully, Jesus' intense compassion and empathy as chapter 11, 
as he walks with his friends through their experience of loss and bereavement. A few examples. Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, think about it for a sec, of all the words that anyone could have spoken, these are the words she wanted to hear. She longed to hear, your brother will rise again. And then again in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And there are many other examples as well. So Jesus was right there in the depth of their sorrow and grief and loss. Here's a question. Have you ever wondered what it must have been like for Lazarus to have had this extra chapter added to his life? What would it have been like for him to return, maybe even gradually, to everyday life? Or was there even such a thing anymore for Lazarus as everyday life? I'm just speculating, okay? But what if in that brief visit to the afterlife, he had gotten used to being done with life on earth? What if he'd kind of relinquished his claims on having a longer life? What would it have been like for Lazarus to go around again and prepare himself a second time? To get ready a second time for old age and dying? Because we don't know how long Lazarus, the sequel, lasted. And think of all the questions that someone like Lazarus would have had to ask on his return to life on earth. Think of all the people who would ask him, what are you doing here? Completely reasonable question. Think of all the interviews he would have had to sit through. Think of all the death threats, as we find out in the next chapter, he would have faced from people who found his story inconvenient to their reality. I was reminded that you knew it was coming, a C.S. Lewis reference. C.S. Lewis wrote a poem about Lazarus as the first martyr, not St. Stephen, who's in chapter in, in the book of Acts, but Lazarus being called back as a witness to the power of Jesus over death. Lazarus the martyr. An interesting assignment for sure. Here's what another writer had to say. What about this? Throughout the gospel, Jesus shows himself to be giving life and revealing life and calling people to life. And that's not about tomorrow after you die, about some heavenly future. Now is the day of salvation, Paul tells the Corinthians. Now, in this time and place, life is now. How would that reality have landed for those eyewitnesses 
to John chapter 11. How would it have played out for people who were seeing in a way that nobody, nobody had ever seen before, that there was a power stronger than death? And I think in John chapter 11, we're meant to pick up on some, what would you call it, foreshadowing in this story. Because in addition to his deep sadness at the death of his friend and the sorrow of his sisters, Jesus must also have had in mind his own approaching death. But as we saw with Ezekiel and as we saw with Paul in Romans, these words from the word of God not only help us to face our own mortality for what it is, without denial, without avoidance, without distraction, but they help us to look beyond it to a place of genuine, deep, authentic, abiding hope and redemption. It is true, as one writer put it, that death meets us along the road in various disguises. It's true that death makes itself known and reminds us that it's there in all kinds of everyday experience. But it's even more true, it's even more true that death does not have the final word. And so we close with the prayer of God's people from our fourth reading, Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.